Hello, boys and ghouls, and welcome to an episode months in the making. All about that 1999 documentary that captures the DIY spirit. American, American movie. Join us as it chronicles the determination of one Wisconsin filmmaker as he burns feet of film and battles banality to craft his horror creation. Coven. Listen in as we detail the blood, sweat, and tears that went into making this sobering, stark piece of Midwestern terror. And the man in the middle of it all, Mark Borchard. So, have a drink and a think. Centrifically focus on the action in the center of the frame. And make sure everyone has brown gloves. As we present Boys and Ghouls, episode 88. All about this American movie. You want to see something really scary? They come from the bowels of hell. A transformed race of walking dead. Zombies, exploding heads. Psychos, fanatics, murderers, nutcases. Now, do we all agree that what we are dealing with is vampires? I know that one of you is a werewolf. Ain't nothing but dead folks. I want to kill you. The undead. You ever talk to a corpse? It's boring. Throw the third switch! Not the third switch! Give my creation! That one is Southern Bell. Yeah. I'm just going to move Love that, it. and then oh, sure. so I can move this whole thing towards Great. it. Great. <clears throat> Wait. Oh, it's my phone. Yeah, it's your phone. Sorry, they all just You look, can give me your phone if you want. They just all look like anonymous black rectangles. Mm-hmm. Mine has a pop socket. Mm-hmm. Um, unrelated to anything, but um, you have a movie night with a couple girlfriends. We try to do it once a month, but it doesn't always work out that way. Sure. But... Um, the next one, I'm showing them whatever happened to Baby Jane. They don't know anything about uh, it. Do you guys like take turns picking yeah. the movies? Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. your night. Okay. Yeah. I don't know how, I don't know what told me to do it, but I was just like, this will be fun. What have they picked? And what have you picked? They often will pick, because there's a bit of an age gap, about yeah. as much as there is between you and I. Um, yeah. I'm that much older right. than them. And so a lot of times they're showing me things that I was a little too old for that were like pivotal for them. Okay. So the last movie we watched was a movie called Debs, which is yeah. you are you familiar? I mean, I know the name. Yeah. It's like Charlie's Angels but like teen girls and like very low budget, so it's a little campy for that and it was a lot of okay. fun, but like so sometimes they'll show me things like that or it will be a movie that none of us have seen that we're all just like we should see that. But we try to vary it up a little bit. One time I showed them Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Good. <laughs> all right. Well, cat, exciting for us is that Burbank has a video store again. Exciting is an understatement. Leaning on nostalgia, but still a functional video store. Mm-hmm. It's called Be Kind Video. On the same block is Slashback Video. Not on the same block, but on the same street mm-hmm. a few blocks away. is Slashback Video. And that's more of like an art installation Instagram museum, mm-hmm. you might call it. Yeah. 
Not to say there aren't fun pictures to be taken in Be Kind video, because the back of the store is like a whole, like, homage to the 80s. Yeah. And like a good TV watching room. Like if the 80s all happened at once, (laughs) that's what it would look like. (laughs) Excuse me. Where is your VHS section? So this place rents DVDs and sells VHS. And you had the expected reaction when I took you there. Yeah. Oh, by the way, they've, um, they, Matthew, who runs the place, he's the they. He's so nice. He has moved in enough. Now the DVDs are in sections by genre. Mm -hmm. And I pointed out American movie on DVD, which you had told me that like, you're always on the lookout for another copy. Yeah, because Alec and I have a DVD copy, but we had multiple times been to Amoeba and like poured over trying to find another copy because the concern was that our copy would get broken or something would happen and we wouldn't have the movie anymore. It's a precious movie too. Totally. It's become very apparent in the last several years that even if you do buy something digitally, which I've bought plenty of stuff digitally, it can be taken away at any time. Sure. But you've been upgrading into like 4K. Yeah. We're trying really hard to be selective where it's like, do I need to own this movie? And if the answer is yes, then we try to snag it. And this has been a very cherished film in our household. I think Alec showed it to me, you know, we were in our probably early 20s and we usually watch it once a year. Like, And in fact, I realized on my way here that I hadn't asked Alec, like, I couldn't remember how he found the movie because he showed it to me. Sure. So he told me that... This is kind of random, but the DVD was in the apartment he shared with our friend Kellen Coleman, actress Kellen Coleman, (laughs) who had gotten the copy from Andy Milanakis. Do you remember Andy Milanakis? Oh, sure. Well, I can thank him for having that movie make its way to me. So it went from Melanakis. Yeah, to Kellen, to Alec. I don't know if that's the copy we have. I doubt it. I think he might have bought it on But that's just how you got exposed to it. Yeah. I was just working in a video store at the time. Do you remember if someone was like, you got to watch this? Or did you just watch I think, most anything that looked appealing? Was it the cover? Like, Well, even in Pennsylvania, we've all got higher aspirations at the video store. Mm-hmm. And this guy's story sort of like helped feed into that and we were all like from just like wow look what he did to like check this guy out look what he did yeah but speaking of uh working at the video store i've since been in be kind a few times and just like sharing war stories of like what it's like to actually work in a video store yeah which has become a rare thing to have done yes. <laughs> now that there's so few we're actually talking about one but so we saw it there and then that's when the owner of Be Kind told you, like, oh, it just came out on Blu-ray. And you're like, it has? Yeah. And it had. Like, He so casually was just like, yeah, they just released it. There's yeah. a Blu-ray. And I was like. <gasps> you got on your phone and bought it. In the store. In the store. Yeah. Well, off the internet. Correct. While in the store. Yeah. And then I turned and to then, you and said. I got to buy you something. You got to help me find some VHS <laughs> tapes. Because I'm not leaving here having bought something on Amazon.com. Right while in front of the in a owner. local business. I'm not doing that. So That the owner told you about. 100%. Our next movie is American Movie. A terrific documentary by Chris Smith about a Wisconsin man named Mark Borchard. Who dreams of only one thing. Making movies. He hasn't had much success, but he is boundlessly optimistic, and in this scene, he pitches his latest production. Uh, Hey, folks, we're here to talk about American Movie, the movie about the making of... Northwestern. Northwestern, which, over the course of the movie, does not get done. 
But what does get done is a short film called Coven, known to some as Coven. American movie is funny, but it's also kind of inspiring. It's funny because Mark Borchardt is a real character. I kept thinking that if the heroes of Wayne's world made a movie, it would go a lot like this. But at the same time, you have to admire his dogged determination. He may not have had any success yet, but that doesn't stop him. And in his love and obsession for the movies, you can sense the soul of an artist, even if you can't always quite see the ability. One of my favorite things to do when I watch a movie is to look at reviews on Letterboxd. And several people were like, I got halfway through this movie before I realized it wasn't a mockumentary. Okay. And I can't remember watching it for the first time necessarily. Like, I just remember it had an impact on me. But I just bring that up to say that this is a documentary film that was filmed between September 1995 and August 1997. So... Almost two years of filming a documentary that follows Mark Borchardt, this filmmaker in relatively rural, outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Well, later interviews, he likes to draw a point that, no, he's in Milwaukee. Yeah, that's fair. We found that out later, but the way it... The legend makes him seem a little more removed. Totally. You're right about that. You're right about that. So... A documentary film about a filmmaker in Wisconsin who is extremely passionate about his work, simultaneously driven, but also kind of hindered by vices and self-limiting patterns of behavior, I guess I would say. Um, That's a good way to put it. There's a little bit of failure to launch. He's a guy in his 30s. Or about to be 30. About to be 30, He's around probably. 30. I think he turns 30 over the course of I the think you're uh, right. documentary. So a relatively young man, but in a time period where I think 30 was considered a little less young than it is now. Sure. And also just ideas about himself and where he should be. and Versus um, where he is. Versus where he is. And really, the movie is about him trying to finish this feature film he has written called Northwestern and over the course of the film realizing he's not going to be able to pull together this feature. That's kind of the first act. If you could break it into acts. Yeah. The end of his aspirations. Well, no, not really. I mean... He's just a pause. Yeah, it is. Because he feels that if he can finish Coven, which is a short film he'd been working on, and... Like two years earlier he had started. sell that movie then he's going to easily recoup all the money he needs to finish making Northwestern. So it's really making Coven is, in his mind, a means to an end. Yeah. And really the documentary is less about that plot. I mean, it it's there and it's important, but I think it's such a slice of life with characters you can't believe aren't written. Yeah. You could probably show someone the trailer and tell them it's a mockumentary. 100%. And they'd be like, oh, okay, I think, I think I've seen these people before. Totally. I owe like 10000 to my dad, 3600 to child support, 1500 to the IRS, MasterCard like 500 Marshall Fields card like for about 100 a phone probably like 300 I owe like state tax 50 I mean, that's not paying the, I, the state tax. That's I have described, because people are asking like, so what are you up to? What's your next podcast? And I, I try to give them the broad strokes and I say like, He's a guy with, like, negative assets. Mm. What's he got going for him in order to make the movie? Besides drive? Yeah. Not a lot else. I would but say he, drive and... Um, some good friends. Film, passion for film and film knowledge. I mean, yeah. he's, he knows... Besides what's between his own ears, though. Fair enough. As far as, like, money yeah. and assets. Yes. You're talking tangible assets. Props and wardrobe and things yeah. like that. And 
people beyond the few people who are normally willing to help him mm -hmm. that are necessary for a collaborative art mm -hmm. that is making a short film. Mm -hmm. But he does it. Negative and, assets and a lot of self-imposed pressure. Yeah, which is also his drive. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. You, you're, yeah. That's two different columns there. Um, yeah, I think drive and pressure are two sides of the same coin, but... Yeah. I would, but to me, drive has a real positive connotation and self-imposed pressure to me has a bit more of a negative connotation. And I think I find I, I'm feeling us both splitting hairs a lot on this stuff and being delicate about how we describe this person, because I think we both want to take care. We want to get it right. Yeah. And we've done something like this before, but it was Ed Wood. Yeah. Who is long since dead. Yeah, Totally. <laughs> And, and I've got an email from Mark Borchardt in my inbox right now. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's a very alive and well and, a very, you know, a friendly guy. And still guy out there doing it. Out there doing it, yeah. Whereas so. Ed Wood, who we had the movie that told us about the person, and then we had his work to look at, and we could compare them both, and that's why it's so similar to this one. Mm -hmm. But he had since been mythologized by the time we ever made a podcast. And right now, we're just... You're right. I guess we're splitting hairs trying yeah. to trying to say the right thing. Sure. And I guess, yeah, just trying to get it right because... Because too many people generalize. Mm -hmm. That's something I found going forward. Because I basically, I watched the movie, I liked the movie, and then I just put it on the shelf. Yeah. So I haven't checked in with Mark in 20 years, but yeah. now I've dived into a bunch of interviews. Mm -hmm. And I'm more aware than ever that he's a real person. Yeah. I was a failure. I was a failure, and I get very sad and depressed about it, and I can't be that no more. I really feel like I've betrayed myself big time, because I think when I, I know when I was growing up, I had all the potential in the world. Now I'm, I'm back to being Mark, who, who has a beer in his hand, and who's thinking about the great American script and the great American movie, and this time I cannot fail. I won't fail. It's not in me. You don't get second chances and mess them up. You'd be a fool to. Not just finishing films or in the long run getting some money, but it's right now. I feel like it's, like I said, 5, 10, 15 years ago. Now I've got the same options again, and this time I'm not going to fail. This time it's most important not to fail, just to drink and dream, but rather to create and complete. Uh, would you like to know how it all started? I would, because I wasn't able to, like, figure out how Chris and Sarah... Yeah, so Chris the Smith... filmmakers, how they found this guy. Well, Chris Smith had made another movie called American Job, and it came out in like 96, which is about the time he started filming American Movie. Mm -hmm. And he did it with film left over from American Job. Oh, wow. And he's teaching at the University of Wisconsin, teaching, I guess, probably film production. Oh. He runs into Mark outside of school, and Mark is drunk at the time, and tells him, I dropped your class, but I'm still in your class so he dropped it. He probably got his money refunded, but he's still in the class using the equipment. Apparently he got caught by the university and was forced to uh, clean out a warehouse for 80 hours <laughs> as like community service. Oh man. But I guess just, I don't know how long he had to talk to him before he was like, no, here's an intriguing fellow, this Mark. And so first he followed him to a thing that we never even see in the movie. He followed him to like the Toronto film festival where nothing really happened, but it only made him more interested in this curious local filmmaker yeah mark the film starts check it out beautiful stunning black and white shot right now at the magic hour as we float past dilapidated duplexes worn trailer courts and i've been location scouting them so when i do this i've already got what's in between my hands 
and right then at that moment, people say, my God, I'm glad I'm sitting here because I'm actually seeing something for once. So he started to follow him on his big Northwestern as he starts getting together uh, people to help him out. And then each production meeting gets smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. As I think people figured out, like, yeah, he's got a lot of passion, but he doesn't have any money. Mm -hmm. You know, there's... This just isn't going to happen. Yeah, people kind of fell off. Yeah. Except the most dedicated. Sure. And his family and friends who he, like, kind of ropes into really helping him and sure. going out into the snow when they have to do their shopping, like his mom says. I got to say, I um, circle back to Be Kind. I went back and rented that copy mm. of American Movie. And side, as I was leaving, I got that in, like, one other movie. And it was like, do back Thursday. It's like, okay, here I am renting movies again. Who'd have thunk? And as I'm leaving, two people are like passing by and they're like, Hey, did you just rent movies? I'm like, yeah, I got to bring them back and everything. And they were like, good for you. (laughs) And it's like, I got it. I knew what they meant, but at the same time, it was such an odd thing Yeah, for just strangers. Totally. Anyway. For that to be something that's so nostalgic that we're bonding over with strangers. I might as well have told them I was like hiking the Appalachian Trail. Good for you. Good for you. Yeah. So I sat down to rewatch, you know, but it's been the first time in years. I went from being younger than Mark to older than Mark. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't make it past the part where no one shows up for his production meeting. Mm. If it makes you feel better, I feel like at some point in all of my research, I read or saw someone talking about how, like, that was a bit manufactured. Okay. That it wasn't actually naturally how it happened. I'm almost certain. So I don't think it really was like that. Okay, well... Whatever the case, the impact of the movie as I watched it, mm-hmm. I then went off the project for about a month. Sure. <laughs> I was like, I can't. Yeah. I can't. Right now, I can't. Yeah. Later, I did. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're here. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, I couldn't. I understand. I returned that video on time, largely unwatched. Wow. I respect you for protecting your peace for that moment in time. I get it. It's not always an easy watch. Yeah. You know? Once you get over that hump, though. Yeah. We'll start turning. Oh, yeah. And we get to know one Mr. Mike Schenk. He, he asked me to come over and help him out. He said he needs some help. I'm always helping him with his with his films. And, and uh, we used to uh, do a lot of partying together, but I don't party anymore. <laughs> oh, Mike Schenk. May he rest in peace. He passed away last October. Yeah. And that's... Boy, I, I hadn't much thought about him or anybody from that, you know, since mm-hmm. then. And, and you're the one who... Oh, yeah, contacted I've been following me. Mark on Twitter for years and, like, yeah. Yeah, and you're like, Mike Shank passed. And I was yeah. just like, oh. Yeah. And then you told me that it was Mark's daughter who had posted it. And I was like, oh, I guess she's all, I'm doing some math in my head here. I was like, oh, she's all grown up. Yeah. And my attention swung back to American mm-hmm. Movie mm-hmm. after Mike Shank passed. We did a lot of fun things making a movie. We, uh, one time we brought Mark's car into uh, a vacant drive through theater took iron rods and smashed up his car and then another time uh, we dragged mark like head first through a swamp like 25 times mark and mike are the sort of classic duo mm-hmm. mark is tall and thin he's wiry yeah whereas mike is kind of woolly shorter mm-hmm. and plump yeah and the two of them together <laughs> i sent you that box cover art which is the two of them just sort of standing side by side yeah and it looks great it's like here are two guys who are going to do something yeah 
And you want to know more about them just based on the way they look. Yeah. And they've kind of got that, like, stance a little bit, like, we're ready. Yeah. Although the rest of their demeanor doesn't really say we're two guys who are going to take on all comers. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. something about them. Yeah. And I I sent you, right after that, the Super Mario Brothers movie. Yeah. Poster with live action, Mario and Luigi, Bob Hoskins and... John Leguizamo. John Leguizamo kind of side by side, ready to take on all comers in that, like, same positioning as those two. So they're a dynamic duo. So yeah, so these two are a duo in the tradition of like Laurel and Hardy, Jay and Silent Bob. Yeah. You just look at them and yeah. you're like, here's a duo. Well, and Mark is such a prolific talker and thinker and very driven, very passionate, very much like I'm making a movie. I'm making this movie. I'm making that movie. I got to get this stuff together. Whereas Mike Shank is like this kind of perfect foil. He's like kind of quiet but those waters run deep, you know? He's, like, playing classical music on his guitar blindfolded and, like, has absolutely wild stories about why he's now sober because of the drugs he did. And what I think is, like, lovely So they've been it, friends since they were teenagers. Teenagers. What I like about that aspect is that, like, Mike Shank got sober. Mm-hmm. Mark is clearly in the movie still. He's drinking. I believe by then he was off the hard stuff. Mm-hmm. But you drink enough beer. Of course, yeah. But I do like that their friendship seems to still be maintaining. And yeah. it sounds from interviews today like Mark is now sober. Yes. That's what he says. Yeah. So interesting he found his way there. He got there. I don't know when. Not as of the commentary. <laughs> hey, how long have you been sober? For like nine months now. Nine months and seven days. Good man. So we bring up Mike Shank. Not just because they're buddies and this guy's got a buddy, but when it comes time to filming anything, there's Mike. Yep. When everyone else drops out and can't make it, there's Mike. When you need someone to make sure that everybody has gloves. Brown has gloves. Bra- brown <laughs> black gloves or whatever. There's Mike repeating what you say. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Mike, make sure everyone has brown gloves. Does everyone have brown gloves? Oh, dude, dude, dude. <laughs> you got when I look at Mark and Mike, a few things come to mind. Jay and Silent Bob, or more specifically, Kevin Smith and Jason Muse. You know, a couple guys from... America. America, but I was going to say, you know, small town, just getting into trouble together. One of them makes something and kind of like brings the other one with them. Mm-hmm. Hey, yo! I want my MTV, And then Jason Muse has his own acting career. And this also opened up certain opportunities for Mike Shank. Yeah, yeah. I know he was in a Todd Solnes movie. He was in storytelling. Like, not a big part, but, like, there he was. That was awful. That was just awful. What do you think, Mark? I don't know, man. We didn't get the shots we need. Man, what do you think, Mike? I mean, if you saw action going on in front of you, would you know instinctively to center it in front of you? I don't know. Could someone take my soda out of the icebox, please, so it doesn't freeze? Or I think about John Waters and Divine. They would make movies together as teenagers and then as adults. And Mm -hmm. then, like, Divine got her own career through that. Divine has appeared in such films as Pink Flamingos, Female Trouble, and Polyester. He is currently touring with a nightclub act and has a new record on the pop charts. But I also think of... Do you know Harvey Pekar? I don't think so. There's a lot of similarities here. Harvey Pekar wrote the comic American Splendor, Mm. which was just about... A regular guy, his own life, his own regular guy working a regular job, 
and the beauties therein and the tragedies therein of just regular American life. And then his friend Toby, who was himself a real character, but much more introverted than Harvey Picar, then got his own like national attention. Like MTV picked him up and had him doing little spots. Mm-hmm. Hamburgers are a safer addiction than drugs. Say no to drugs. Say yes to White Castle. Anyways, in the tradition of Jason Mewes, Divine, and Toby from American Splendor, now we have Mike Shank. One day I was partying in my basement and I always used to get like pissed off inside because I would want to party really heavy and no one else would, you know. And then all of a sudden Mark came over and uh, either I had a bottle of vodka or he had a bottle of vodka. But anyway, we were drinking vodka and I was, I was so happy that I found someone who would drink vodka with me, you know. So um, And then Mark would drink vodka with me all the time. We'd... You know, I'd go over there all the time, and we'd buy a fifth of vodka, and we'd share it, you know. And uh, that really made me happy. Marshall, can we talk for a second about what we know about Mark Borchardt, like, as a person? Because Shrouded me, mystery. Totally. Well, for me, he existed in the confines of this movie, American movie, for years and years and years. Exclusively. And then I realized he was on Twitter, And there was a time, as I later discovered, shortly after American Movie came out, where he was, like, on Letterman and, like... Well, speak to that. Yeah. He eschews his time on Letterman. I think because that's... he does. I didn't know that. Well, I think because that's where a lot of people know him from even more than having watched American Movie. Really? And by the time those segments were done, he may have kind of been wrapping up that part of his life. But then to make money, being on Letterman and exposure... He then had to go back into a sort of burlesque version of that right, life. Right. Wherein he gives tours of Menominee. Yeah. And now, really, really fun segments, by the way. They're fun segments. So fun to watch. But I think that's become so many people's impression of him, this sort of like version of the documentary. Totally. That he actively lets people know that that's not really what he's all about. Which I totally get. And and I think that's what's so interesting is the hook, the thing about him and about Mike Shank that, like, draw you in, mm-hmm. especially about Mark, the sort of general demeanor, the way he talks. Like, I think for people who don't care to dig deeper or don't get it, the juxtaposition of his, like, wiry, like, kind of... I don't mean this, I grew up around and was a redneck myself, but the kind of, like, redneck, like, you know, is, like, the big glasses, the very 90s, like, the rock t-shirt, like, the scrubby whatever, but then he's, like, he's a Werner Herzog of Wisconsin, like, he's saying all these... He's verbose. Yes. For people, that is a contradiction that is, like, haha, how funny, and then they just move on, he's a cartoon character. And I can imagine it would not feel good to have people like, you can see it sometimes when he's on Letterman, if you watch some of the clips, that he'll say something totally earnestly and people laugh. Yeah, people take it as a laugh line. People think it's funny. And and it's like... "Mm." And I suspect that, like some artists do, you know, they write a book and they finish the book and that's a closure of a portion of their life. Totally. And just as soon as he was done with that part of his life and trying to move on... There's all these interested parties in putting him right back into it. Yeah. And I think that was kind of the case. But, you know, if it leads people, you know, like, oh, I'd like to know more about this, Mark Bouchard. Totally. Then more is the better. And you certainly were curious. I'm 
figuring out bits about him just like there, there's no linear biography of him i did find an article oh. that i can give you some snippets from okay it was an interview done with him kind of around the release of the dundee project which came out what 2017 okay which was a short documentary that he made and this is the closest i found to a linear biography just a couple of things um, Mark first picked up a Super 8 camera in 1980, so I assume he was like 14, something like when that. When was he born? Mid-60s, okay. 66. But he invested his formative years studying film books more than cinema itself. That's I, from Mark. Yeah, I'd heard that also, uh-huh. which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, kind of where was the VCR at that point? Yeah. Not in every home. No. So books were more accessible. He says, quote, I would look at the photographs, those dramatically posed black and white publicity stills from films, and I would become enchanted as to what the premise was. And I do think that's very interesting to have. I had that experience as a kid a lot, like looking in books at stills from movies, and Mm -hmm. you're just like riveted, even though you're not watching the scene. My library had this series of books that came out, I'm sure, before home video, where it was one picture for every shot in the movie. Yeah. And that was the whole book. Totally. When I was your age, television was called books. So the interviewer asks, was this a form of fantasy? No, 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 no. He spits (laughs) out firmly. No fantasy. No, I was so engaged in real life that the last thing I wanted to do was sit in front of a screen. What film did simply was this. I was enamored by composition and the camera's possibilities. I thought, what if you put real people with real dialogue, which film doesn't do, in front of the screen, but with cinematic compositions. If you would see an action, you would kind of like centrifugally focus on it, it being in the center. Yeah, I, I can figure that out, yeah. But he goes on to say, Tying it all together is an outlook that Mark has managed to find poetry in, a reminder that outsiders can be found everywhere. Quote, there's a lot of alienation, wonderment, and alchemy of many things, he says. To be exposed to such a gathering of mysterious, charismatic personalities, I realize that these pockets of dream worlds exist everywhere, even in your own backyard. So that's the closest, like, you get, I think, that you can find of, like, a formative picture of who he was as a kid and why he cares about film. And I think what makes it so hard to get at is that you have to trust him as the narrator. You mean the narrator of his own biography? Correct. As are we all. But I think it's like he's about doing the work. And, you know, you've heard him say he hates small talk. He doesn't want to waste one second of his day doing something that's not productive. That's also him now. Yeah. How much of it was him before American Movie? Right. I'm not as sure. Right. Now, we are a horror podcast. And our hook into this is that he did make a horror movie. Correct. And he's a huge horror fan. Yes. More a fan, I think, of those horror movies that, because they're low budget or just the nature of scaring people, Mm -hmm. have set themselves in a world that, knife-wielding maniac aside, most resembles his own world. Do you know what Haddonfield is? Families, children, all lined up in rows, up and down these streets. In an interview that he wasn't in, but the documentarians were in, they said that Close Encounters of the Third Kind was an important movie for him because it's the first time he'd seen people living in a ranch house, a ranch-style house, just like he did. And Mm. I think horror movies, American horror movies, tend to be more grounded. Yeah. And in that grounding, I think he sees himself. Sure. Well, and it's like if something is represented that looks like you or looks like something you could do yourself, you're more likely to attempt that. Like... Other big, big budget films. Like, he can't go out and make Jaws, 
but he could go out and make a horror movie that's set in a ranch-style house, yeah. right? Because that's the world he lives in. Uh, Dawn of the Dead seemed a lot more realistic than Hollywood films. Um, there was gray skies and dead trees and uh, the uh, National Guard out there. And it was just something I didn't see in other films. It was just great. The dialogue was different. Uh, there was blood, Night of the Living Dead. It was in black and white, dead trees and gray skies. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre was like one of those... Uh, 16 millimeter accident films they'd show you in school. You know, the grain of it and the, the saturated color of it. Just really, and I'd be having nightmares. I mean, that was really like um, being alive and watching something instead of something dead like a Hollywood film. What I was hoping for was a more um, structured biography. Mm-hmm. Like, so he dropped out of high school saying that they really had nothing more to teach him. Yeah. Which I can really see him feeling that way. Joined the military. I know that much. Yes. When? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Then got out of the military. I don't know when he yeah. then had three kids. Yeah. Or did those overlap? I don't know. He um, worked several kinds of jobs before we meet him. He did work in a factory for a while, and that factory work is sort of held up as like the antithesis of what he wants to do with his life. Yes. It's always brought up as the example. I guess because it's an option that's always there. So to him, that's like the big bad. That's the thing that everyone yeah. thinks he should do. His main asset is really just his mouth, his talking. And he can be pretty convincing, you know, because he's very assertive, very aggressive. But what he actually can do, I think that he's just best suited for working in a factory, maybe. He, when we meet him, has a paper route. Yep. Which he says was something that he would sort of return to over the years. He had it when he was a kid. And I guess whenever um, he's got to make some money and basically you're your own boss, Mm -hmm. there's Mm -hmm. time constraints, but there's no one in the car with you. Well, he says either in American movie or maybe the commentary that he had that job for like five years or something that he just couldn't keep it up because the hours were brutal. Like you had to be up so early, but he said it was like so nice to like just vibe and drive around before the sun came up and like be in the car with your thoughts. He could think, he could listen to the radio, whatever, and, like, do the job. His thoughts are never far from nature. No, they are not. And what a good landscape can do for him. Yep. And when I see write-ups about him and about the movie, they will point out that what he's delivering is the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. He could have been delivering any publication. Mm-hmm. But because the Wall Street Journal is so money and finance-centric, I think people like to point out that sort of juxtaposition between the guy who's behind on all of his bills. Yeah. Like all of his bills. Yeah. And the fact that he's slinging these Wall Street journals, you know, not casually read in neighborhoods where they got money and they like reading about money. Snookums prefers the rubber Wall Street Journal to the rubber Washington Post. Don't we all? So here he is. Here's where we find him. And now he wants to finish the short film that he'd started a couple of years ago. So Mm -hmm. we've still got footage from it. And we see auditions. Actually, those auditions were for... No, were those for the radio play? Those were for Northwestern. That's true. Yeah, yeah. So there's an acting community out there for him to pull from. Oh, yeah. 186-minute phone call to California at prime rates? What could you possibly talk to that stupid-ass brother of yours about for that long? You know he's been having psychological problems lately. Not on my phone, Bill, he doesn't. Some of those actors, obviously, in the auditions. But some of the ones that he even hires, like, are... Eh. And some of them are truly, really good. Like, especially once I finally sat down and watched Coven, I was like, damn. That's kind of the talent pool. Yeah. You got some real stars in there. Yeah, you really do. Perhaps for the benefit of our new member, I ought to reveal a few facts about my own life. 
We have no secrets here. Michael, I'm a murderer. His name is Robert, and he's credited as Goodman. And I think you know who I'm talking the about. The British-sounding guy? Well, he the, certainly the strikes you as a continental proper man. Proper continental man. Always well-dressed. Absolutely incredible stuff. What a character. But perhaps you ought to know a few details of this dastardly circumstance. He's the one who has the coven... coven. Yeah, he, 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 he kind of says what we're all thinking. Scene. Yeah. He goes, I believe it's pronounced coven. Coven sounds like oven. Yeah, no yeah. way, man. Yeah. Coven. Coven. Coven? He gets a lot of his equipment from the University of Wisconsin. You just take a class. You're the one who pointed out to me that, like, that wasn't an uncommon thing for filmmakers to do to sign up for a film class at, like, a community college and be able to have access to the labs where you could, like, edit and use the equipment and all of that. Sure, and sign up for the camera sheet. Uh When he'd say, like, oh, I've got to get this done today, that means that the camera has to go to another student by the next day. I think it went pretty good, but I don't want to say that until I see the footage, man, because you never know what's going to happen. So shooting on film, it's not like he's got a a video assist. He's just got the viewfinder to look through. If it comes out too dark, he won't know until like a week later Mm -hmm. when he gets Mm -hmm. the film back Mm -hmm. or however long. Certainly by then, the actors have all gone home and the equipment's been returned and the props are back in their boxes. If something else went wrong, he won't know until much later, which is why he says like, oh, I've done this, you know, three, four times already this is ridiculous we started may 94 man and right now we got to take action man we got to go out to that field put those scarecrows in on a killer slant you know they've been there for years the farms burnt down it's going to be the opening shots for coven you know following the documentary itself one of the first things we see only gets better when you learn a little more about it it's mark and mike just talking to the documentary camera talking about what coven's about and they're standing in front of this burned down building. Yeah. Which I was like, oh, okay, because he's always talking about rust and decay, and that's the themes that he wants to explore in Northwestern. Just found some burned down building to talk in front of. Yeah. Turns out that was his location that he had secured and like talked with the owners and locked down and had the equipment already and everything already, and the location burned down before he could film there. Is that the scene where he talks about Colin Morocco? Yeah. That's where they're standing. Rather than talk about his bad luck, he then just sort of like turns it in on himself. Yeah. And uh, what is Coven? Coven's a 35-minute direct market thriller film shot on 16-millimeter black and white reversal. It's uh, an alcoholic man compelled to go to this group meeting by his one and only friends left. But they're not that helpful, the group, you know? But also in that scene is something that I texted you about just kind of as a, uh, Hey, did you notice this? I noticed this. And then I haven't been able to really stop thinking about it. Colvin's a 35 minute direct market thriller film. Wait a second. He already knew it was going to be 35 minutes. That's like Babe Ruth, just like pointing where the ball's going to totally. go. Yeah. And I was like, wow, how would he like, is it that tightly scripted? Is it that tightly storyboarded? And part of it is, kind of, I think, but it's that on a regular film, if you lose the location, you might just lose the scene and have to like make it up mm-hmm. with like ADR giving exposition where it wasn't normally going to go or maybe combine scenes together or cut out a subplot or something like that. You know, on a big budget movie that we're used to watching, 
the idea of knowing how long a movie is going to be is like, well, you can average it out. It's going to be long or short. Mm -hmm. And then there's discoveries in the editing room. This works. This doesn't work. Sure. But no, he would shoot a scene. And if it didn't come out right, rather than scrap it or combine it with another scene, he would just do it again. Yeah. And he wouldn't do it immediately. There's no way he could. He'd do it months and months later or, or whatever. And he's like, this is the fifth time I've been out in these woods. Yeah. Getting this scene. Yeah. And it's only made harder, again, by the fact that he's shooting on film. But he would just go back and just do it until it's done. And do it until it's done. And that's part of the drive that people are responding to. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, how he could just say, I'm going to make a 35-minute film. And yeah. he made basically, a th it might yeah. be like 34 or 36, a 35-minute film. it is, yeah. And it was just like, don't stop till it's done. As opposed to like the rigors, the different kind of rigors yeah. of a, you know, more mainstream film. Yeah, he did it his way. Now you guys got to look menacing. Can you be more menacing? <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, we, we got to do what we can do then, I guess. He did the, the smart thing, I think, of having the menacing group appear with like occult-like cloaks. Mm -hmm. You know, where you can't see their faces. It's just cloaks. Mm -hmm. That way... Because he's just getting whatever, I think in the commentary, he says, you know, whatever rummies and people who just hang around that I could find to try to be in the movie. And yeah. half the time they wouldn't show up. So whatever friends he could, including, and this is in like the trailer, his mom and then his yep. poor mother. Yeah. She says, I have my shopping to do. But no, she's but there she in the snow with a cloak with Mike Shank and whoever else. Well, I also he heard in get. the commentary that Uncle Bill. He Mike got in a cloak? Mark said Bill put on the Coven robe at some point and went out in the woods. Maybe wow. he's not in the final cut. Well, he did Uncle do Bill some of that wood stuff in uh, 94. That was some of the stuff he had already filmed. Well, Uncle Bill, we haven't even mentioned. So yeah. some of the financing, somewhere I heard the number $3,000. That was the amount of money he needed to finish making Coven, right? I heard you're going to be a big time movie producer. Me? Well, good news, Bill. We're working very hard. You'll have your 3000 back very soon. Really? Yep. And uh, we've got the whole tomorrow story boarded out here. I know. I saw that a couple of times already. Okay, so he did get money off of him. The infamous bank scene Yeah. apparently was more just them trying to set up a checking account so when people did buy Coven, yeah. that's where it would go. Totally. And, you know, he needed Bill to do that. So he got some investment money off of his uh, mm -hmm. elderly... Uncle Bill, mm -hmm. who has been stashing it away for years. Yeah. And, li and living in a trailer. Living and, in a trailer. Yeah. Something of a hoarder. And a bit of a poet. A character in his own way, and we're only led to believe that, you know, if we just met him 20 years earlier, we'd really see what sure. a character he was. Yeah. So here's to the joys we had together when we met in June. Let us be the way we were. Uh, sorry, I miss you so much. Uh, since you died, since you wanted to die, it's pretty That's the end. pretty optimistic view. One thing I did want to not forget to mention to you is that one of my favorite things about American movie beyond the like characters and all of that is how atmospheric it is. And I think so much of that is like, you know, we'll see shots of Coven which are just these beautiful like landscapes of this stark yeah Wisconsin winter and something that like 
Mark carries to this day, like, on Twitter, he will tweet, like, glowingly of an absolutely disgusting, ugly winter storm. In the commentary, he even stops to marvel at the beauty of the landscape in the movie that he's watching. He says, those cold, wintry, gray days, I love them. And he also says, junkyards are atmospheric and beautiful. Oh, yeah. He finds beauty in kind of what other people might find, like, stark and maybe depressing. He finds, like, a rusty car has just the great stories to tell. Yeah. In the time it took to rust. And... What's a junkyard if not a, a winter forest? 100%. Yeah. I wonder if by the time he ever makes Northwestern, if all these great places will just been built over. I think in the commentary, he talks about how that drive-in that they filmed in yeah. uh, is not there anymore. And the cornfield is like yeah. houses now. Yeah. I'm listening to the ADR work right now. What's ADR work? Additional dialogue recording. What's additional dialogue recording? When the original... Dialogue recording while the camera was running is not good enough because of camera noise or extraneous noise. You must re-record it in a more subtle environment. You understand now? No. Once everything's all been filmed, then it's time for ADR. Yeah. Have you ever done ADR? Not in any big sense. It's fun. Okay. Yeah. A little stressful, but it's fun. I learned about it in the movie Postcards from the Edge. There's a whole ADR scene. And... I thought about that when I saw that his kids, his three kids, are there for a lot of the filming. Yeah. And sometimes they lend a hand and they help out. And they're also sort of getting it. Like, I had to watch the movie Postcards from the Edge to find out what ADR meant. But his kids are right there, like, learning on the spot and seeing what it is and then, like, seeing what it can mm-hmm. do. And, and it's really no wonder. watching movies with their dad when they're young. They're like, yeah. what, are, what kinds of movies your dad show you? And they're like, Apocalypse Now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh, man. Um, so now watching this movie, and I know, like, his oldest daughter, Dawn, Dawn. Is, is a filmmaker now. Yeah, she works in the independent film scene. I think she works putting together festivals and stuff. All right. Now that's something that time has helped with when watching that movie. I wonder if a version of Hearts of Darkness for Apocalypse Now could be done today, mm-hmm. only this time include a bunch of footage of the Coppola children mm-hmm. who are now filmmakers mm-hmm. and watch them, like, get exposed to the craft of filmmaking. Yeah. Just like now I'm going back and watching American Movie and seeing Dawn, like learning what ADR is and yeah. like learning different film techniques kind yeah. of on the spot. Yeah. You guys want to make films when you get older? No. 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 Yeah. Yeah, uh, because you got to buy some stuff and it takes so much money and so much time. So you were yeah. bringing up that it was time for ADR. Once Coven yeah. is in the can. The most memorable scene of which is getting some lines out of Uncle Bill. So Uncle Bill's in the movie. He's got one line. It's the first line of the mm-hmm. movie. Mm-hmm. And watching it, it's kind of like that scene in Disaster Artist when he just keeps trying to get the line right. And the comedy doesn't come from him as much as the growing frustration <laughs> yeah. of the filmmakers trying to get, yeah. trying to encourage that line out of him. Roll down the window, Bill. It's all right. Uh, okay, cut. All right. You know, it's all right. It's okay. There's something to live for. Jesus you, told me so. Exactly. And we because we've heard it so many times. We because, can do it in one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But poor Uncle Bill. It's all right. Uh, there's something to live for. Jesus told me so. Okay, great, Bill. But we got to... 
We have to have fluidity in there. It's like he just doesn't get the gravity of the situation and like, you he's, know. He's pretty sure he's being fleeced. Sure. And jerked around by yeah. his nephew. Yeah. Which he definitely isn't. And he'd much rather just be, you know, enjoying some peppermint schnapps. One of the things that charms me about American movie and Mark's desperation to get Coven finished is like, yeah, he's asking Uncle Bill for help, but also he cares for Uncle Bill in really tangible ways and sure. like hangs out with him, helps him take a bath, you know, does like, his laundry. Well, does he, ha- his he has laundry. him over for Thanksgiving. Yeah. And then within that, also like puts him in the bathtub. Yeah. And then while he's in the bathtub, does his laundry. And you can even tell, like, when he goes over to his place, it's like, yeah, he would like to get some of Uncle Bill's money to help him finish his movie. But he also thinks he's a funny dude to hang out with. You know? There seems to be real care there. But, yeah, it is extremely funny watching Uncle Bill try to get that line. Okay, let's do take seven, man. It's all right. It's okay. Um... Cut. Okay. You have to believe in what you're saying, Bill. You don't? Well, it... I don't. I don't believe nothing what you're doing. All right. Give it some passion. He doesn't just record him sitting there in his own trailer to get the sound right. He puts him out in a car. Because that's where he is in the film. Outdoors, yeah. He's sitting in a car that's moving mm-hmm. during this part. Uh, similarly, it was Mark being dragged through... The muck in one scene by the uh, the coven, yeah, the people in robes that spring themselves on him while he's out in the woods, and he's not afraid to get wet and dirty for his project. But in order to record the sound to match the scene, somebody else got dragged through yeah. the water <laughs> while Mark recorded the swooshing, swooshing sounds, mm-hmm. which is also interesting. Like you watch those things about Foley, and it's like, couldn't you just like recreate that with like a water balloon and yeah. a bag of crumpled newspapers you know uh, how they do yeah but no they had to go actually back out into the same woods and drag him through the muck yeah in order to get the sound of being dragged through the muck mm-hmm. uh, i'm gonna see what we have to work with i'm gonna jesus christ man then it's time to edit and there's a great scene where the kids are with him in the editing room and they're all sleeping in sleeping bags because I'm guessing he's just catching like a quick few winks. Yeah. And then he's going to be like right back at it. Yeah. Like that's why they're doing that. And like, like while they sleep, he's going to sleep with them in the scene, it yeah. looks like. He'll get back. In up. sleeping bags. And how exciting is that as a kid? Oh like, my God. You could look at it one way and be like, this father, he's dragging his kids to this. They're having to sleep on the school. floor. In the, yeah. They're asleep on the floor in the school, but it's just like. No, I bet that they think no, it's amazing. It's, yeah. You having a, like a sleepover and like, what did people A camp out yeah. in a government building? Totally. I mean, look, I'm sure that based on context and everything, maybe everything about their childhood wasn't exactly the best. Uh-huh. Neither was mine. We all have our things, but I agree in this moment. It's like, that's cool. Yeah. I would think that was pretty magical as a kid. Now, Donnie, get your sleeping uh, bag ready. It's not a sleeping bag. Shit. Shit, all I can see is purple land. Is that the first? Did you swear, man? Purple. And. And that great moment where his daughter curses. Yeah, he's like, did you just say shit? She's like, no. No. He's like, like, well, I don't care. I just want to make sure I'm not hearing things. Yeah. (laughs) It's very funny. (laughs) But he didn't say, though. You know we have a documentary crew. We can just go back and watch. I can listen to tape right now. He's just genuinely like 
bemused or just purely amused. He's just like, do you just say shit? Also, just speaking of the documentary, so it's not the kind that has like narration. By and large, there's not much intrusion Mm -hmm. of the fact that it's Mm -hmm. a documentary. And it's beautifully transitioned together with like some of Mike Shank's guitar playing. Yes, though, that's something. Great music in this documentary. Great music. Yeah, Mike Shank supplied the music for the documentary. Mm -hmm. He didn't supply the music for Coven. That was a guy who did the music for the radio shows. Yes. Which, when we first meet Mark, that's what he's working on. Like, that's his creative project. He's doing a Halloween radio show. Yeah. Which is pretty great. Like, in the style of, like, old-time radio. And I'll tell you what. The Coven score is, like, A-plus in my book. In editing, he's doing, like, A, B editing so you'll have film and then you'll have black so you don't lose any frames in the shot and then you'll have black while the next shot is on and then it will have black while the next shot comes on from the other side i don't know how well i'm explaining that it took me a while to figure it out i'm not quite with you but i think um it's a lot of work i know you know what you're talking about and it is clear from the scene that it is a lot of work and then the sound has to be synced to that and you can't see sound but the good news is you can write on sound Mm -hmm. You can mark where everything is, and you see people doing that, and you see people just going through and finding different takes. Like, they're not doing the... sliding this film through their gloved hands, just trying to find what they're looking for. So his friends are helping him. They're not making, like, final decisions, but they are, like, I believe, helping separate takes. Exhaustive. Yeah. Like, it's hard to overstate how much more arduous in so many ways it was to make a movie on film. I think it's cool that anybody can take their iPhone nowadays and go make a movie. Like, that's incredible. We're in a really wild place for that. But respect for anybody who's ever made a movie on film, like, themselves. At this point in his story, and now we're up to 90... We're up to summer of 97. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he's working in a cemetery. And he's got all these American flags, and they're like big American flags on like poles, and he's got like 1,500 of them to deal with. Personal note, I was watching this and I started doing the math. I was also working in a cemetery at that exact same time, like that summer of 97, during what's considered the busy season, which is between Mother's Day and Memorial Day, Mm -hmm. where there's flowers and flags to deal with. I only had to deal with these little flags, and you'd put them in the graves of all the veterans. He had to deal with... Huge. Huge flags. Um, There's a quote from that scene. Oh. And I think it is such a moment in the movie that always stuck with me. He says, I was called to the bathroom at the cemetery to take care of something. I walked in the bathroom and in the middle toilet right there, somebody didn't shit in the toilet. Somebody shat on the toilet. They shat on the wall. They shat on the floor. I had to clean it up, man. But before that... For about 10 to 15 seconds, man, I just stared at somebody's shit, man. To be totally honest with you, man, it was a really, really profound moment. Because I was thinking, I'm 30 years old, and in about 10 seconds, i got to start cleaning up somebody's shit, man. And he describes it as a profound moment. And I think it's a Uh, profound moment in the film to hear him say that. Yeah, we never see it. No. He talks about it. I remember when this movie was new, and some friends of mine had seen it. And I hear them describing it to somebody else. And that exact scene Mm -hmm. helps them sort of convey who it is they're rooting for. Yeah. I can't say we've all had that exact moment. 
No, but it, but we've I all been given it, pause. Yes, it resonates as for whatever it is that you, whatever reckoning you have with yourself, whatever scary age is in your mind about when you think you're old, whatever personal thing it is, whatever job you think you should or shouldn't have, wherever you think you should or shouldn't be in your life, about any bucket that can be there, relationship, job, we can all understand having a what my dad would call a come to Jesus moment with ourselves, where we're just like standing outside of ourselves, looking at ourselves and thinking about who we are and where we're at. But that moment coming where it does in the movie, if this were a scripted film and, you know, real life doesn't follow the structure of a narrative film, but it is that last down moment before rising up again to actually succeed in the task. Mm -hmm. Because it's not long after that, that they have their premiere of Coven. Yeah. I hear that he finished it up a couple of minutes ago, so we're right, on, we're right on schedule here. Uh-oh. Uncle Bill. Bill's here. There you go, the executive producer, man. Come right on over here, man. And it's everything you'd hope for. The moment where he has Uncle Bill outside, and he's like, they're here to see your movie, man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Those are tickets that you're selling now. Mm, I was wondering. <laughs> I was wondering. You. Well, you happy now? Or you got finances on your mind. They rented a theater. They had to turn people away. You know, he gets up. He's on the stage. He's saying he's, his piece. He he's thanking his people. All. He's like exhausted. This movie was worked on till the last minute. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And then we get to enjoy people watching it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we get to see parts where it's finally success, including parts where his mom was filming him, which is like insert shots. Mm-hmm. The part of the head going through the cupboard, which... That made the trailer. Yeah. The filming of that scene. The, the filming of yeah. that scene, because, like, oops, we didn't uh, correctly rig mm-hmm. where your head was going to go, and I bet that hurt. No, hey, Uncle Bill, thanks, Dad and Mom, man, for all the sandwiches and the money. I'm going to wake up to hell tomorrow, man. Those credit cards ain't going to look nice, man. But I'm, I'm always a man for my word. Mike Schenk, you happy? Yeah, How happy are you, man? I'm very happy. Well, good, man, because don't drink. <laughs> You're going to set the world's record. Okay, man. I'm cold down. But, hey, I'm serious, man. If I miss somebody or anything, man, thanks a million for uh, for helping out, man, because I, I couldn't have whatever done it. Yeah! But there it is in, like, a finished product yeah. and, and success. It's like, it's the end of Rocky. Yeah. He made it. He went the distance. Product uh, accomplished, whatever. Uh, God told me so. <laughs> you done good, Bill. Congratulations. <laughs> so, you ready to make the next movie? Sure. And then a little bit of, you know, little denouement. Little denouement where he goes to see Uncle Bill with big plans. It's like, okay, phase one is done. Phase two is Northwestern. What's your American dream? I don't have any dreams anymore. You don't. No. You can't stop now. What are you going to do, sit around outside of a trailer? We'll film you sitting outside of a trailer, man, but we ain't going to live sitting outside of a trailer. Where else am I going to sit? Now, Uncle Bill is, he's never been well, but now he's hes looking pretty rough. But it's Feeling like summer day. Yeah. It's a summer day and everyone's in their short sleeves and he's outside the trailer enjoying the summer air and they get on the conversation of what, like, what are your dreams, man? Yeah. He's like, I don't have dreams anymore. And he's like, no, yeah. you can't stop. Can't stop dreaming. Yeah. And he goes into kind of a rambling, 
soliloquy. Yeah, kind about, of a strange. It's like he enters another plane of existence. Uncle Bill enters another plane of existence or something. It's like a moment of clarity, sort of transcendence. Okay, yeah, yeah. I was going to say because it's not terribly clear, but at the same time, you know what he's, he's saying. Clear in a different way. Oh, come again, come again. Mm. Stay, stay a while. Stick around a while. Stick around as long as you can. Heaven help you. God help you. Jesus help you. Everybody else help you. Everybody, everybody make happy. Make everybody happy. Be a comedian. Is like, is he giving life advice? Right. Is this someone who's on his way out saying, you know, how one could or should spend their time? Alec and I will still say to each other, be a comedian. Oh. We will quote Uncle Bill sometimes as like, it's half joking, but it's kind of like a, yeah, you know, don't, don't forget. Yeah. Don't forget. And that shouldn't surprise me that you do that because as we've said, you have found profundity in this movie over the years. Yeah, and I think this is a good place for me to say. I was on my way over here, and I called my husband, Alec, and I was like, I realize I forgot to ask you, why is this your favorite documentary? Like, what does this do for you? He said that really he identified. He saw a lot of himself in Mark in the movie. And not necessarily in, like, a fun way. It hit him really hard when he watched it. And he said specifically that it touched on themes like Not only the fear of failure, Mm -hmm. but the fear of finishing. If I finish this big project and it fails, it doesn't do well, Mm -hmm. well, then I'm worthless, you know. And then what? And then what? And he said, it's about things you're afraid to admit about yourself. I'm ashamed of myself. I should be arrested. I should be purged. I should be flogged. The creative person in him saw something in this character in the movie. And he's like, of course, there's fun stuff. Like these characters on camera who are just, you can't believe they're real people. And like, there's a certain enjoyment to watching the movie and the comedic timing, intentional or not, of like some of the characters. It's just great. But he was like, yeah, I saw so much of myself in this man who is like afraid to do what he's doing, afraid to not do what he's doing creatively and that it just has never left him you know it's just his favorite documentary and i think it's mine too and i think that transcends just the idea of wanting to make movies and wanting to tell stories yeah you know a very small percentage of the people who love rocky just to go back to that are actually boxers right but we're all there with it projecting our own aspirations for our own non-boxing things that we'd like to do in this world that's the whole deal man you gotta assert yourself man and think i am here because you ever think about that? I am here because. <laughs> <laughs> I did the math, and on the day that Coven had its big premiere, when like things had reached their zenith in the um, the story of American movie, was the same day I was fired from the cemetery. Really? Yeah. The and universe echoes. I'd never been fired from anything before, so I had like. Before I went home, I like went to a park and I just had a bit of a think. Mm. Do I know what happened? I don't remember. I don't know if we ever got into specifics, but I just wrecked too much equipment. 
Wow. Is, is, is the short version. Pretty badass, and, Marshall. And also the version <laughs> I was told. Yeah. And I'd also become redundant. Part of the reason I was hired was there was the groundskeeper, then there was the assistant groundskeeper, and he'd gotten a DUI and could no longer drive the truck around the cemetery. So they mostly needed me, well, one, to do groundskeeping work, Mm -hmm. you know, but also they really needed me because they just needed somebody with a driver's license who could drive the truck around the grounds. And once they found someone else who could do that and not wreck as much equipment as I did, um, I was like, oh. Sorry to hear that, Marshall. Step into my office. Why? Because you're fucking fired. If you want to say something to wrap up, like, American movie itself, and then we can bop over to Coven. Well, two things to wrap up American movie. One is, um, it said that, like, within a few months, I think, Uncle Bill dies. Yep. And he leaves Mark money in his will to do Northwestern. Yeah. Or uh, specifically to do Northwestern, but... You know, he does leave, he leaves him 50,000. It says yeah. to finish Northwestern. Who knows if that's what he specified, but I do think it speaks volumes for, you know, as crotchety as he seemed and how he was always like yeah. cantankerously arguing. You know, he'd say, blah, 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 multiple sales. Multiple sales to who? You know, yeah. just always arguing with Mark, but. And like really dragging his feet on, you know. But he left him a good amount of money. Like He, he did in he the end. Something like. 200,000 and if you left mark 50? Yeah. It's not insignificant, you know. And then the movie goes out on kind of a nice note where it shows some of the old movies that Mark would make with his friends when they were all young and had full heads of hair and their lives ahead of them and you get to see a uh, young Mike which was kind of a real treat. Yeah. What he looked like when he... Youth really looks great on everybody, doesn't it? Yeah. It's incredible. And it goes out on that. And so you, you know, like, their futures. Yeah. Somewhat when you watch them. Yeah. And you, 20 years past, if you look into them, now you know their futures even more mm-hmm. when you go back and watch this movie. Mm-hmm. Of these young men just kind of banging around Wisconsin, having fun making movies. Yeah, until you said that earlier... I hadn't really thought about the fact that when the first time I saw this movie, I was younger than our leads, mm-hmm. and that now when I watch it, I am older. Yeah. And not by a little bit, by like, you know, close to a decade. Sure. And that's interesting. It's a different experience for sure. It is. Um, all right, Kat. Yes. In this horror movie podcast. Is that what we're doing? Yeah. Oh, okay. Let's talk about the horror movie that's been kind of at the center of this, Coven, which they never say in the movie. So whenever somebody pronounces it Coven, it's because they know. They know from interviews or they know from watching American oh, movies. you're saying they never say it in the movie Coven. They yeah. say it in American movie. Yes, correct. So they never say, boy, it's, it's really some Coven we've got here. Right. It goes completely unsaid, either pronunciation. Do you think there's a person on the planet who somehow found Coven? Independent of American movie, and it's like I saw this great movie Coven. That does it's possible. There's enough people on this earth, but or maybe someone showed it to them independent of American movie. Right. Having said that, there is, as of a few years ago, a movie called Coven, like a a mainstream. There was bound to be if there hadn't been before that. It's a good title. Yeah. At this point, pronouncing it Coven feels that feels wrong. So, if you're watching it in black and white, that's Coven. Uh, A movie that. 
despite both of us having a warm regards for American movie, didn't watch until this podcast. I'm ashamed to say. I don't know why I never sought it out, but I didn't. Were you afraid it would be bad? Um, sure, but that wouldn't have, like, done anything to me. Like, it's not like I would have been like, oh, that's too bad. But I suppose... Not not like you thought it would be bad, but were afraid. Right. No, I wouldn't say that. I think it was as, quote, bad, like, as I expected it to be, in the sense that what I expected was that there would be some questionable acting, some maybe here and there, some dialogue that was a little odd, and that it would look, that there would be some really incredible shots. Okay. And that there would probably be a cool score, simply because they would show shots of it, you know, in that end of American movie. That's true. And you hear some of the score, and you see some of the cool, like that canted angle, like, and the all the coven of people around that car in the field. And it just, it looks badass. So I figured there would be some of that in it. Mm-hmm. It delivered basically what I thought it would. It I does enjoyed it. look like a field. Yeah. The people, and so when you watch the movie, you realize that was a drive-in. Right. Yes. And that is a great shot. It is. For any movie. Yes. Them around the car. Yeah. It's badass. And, and no wonder, like, that's, I think, sometimes the cover if you yes. purchase it. Isn't that good? I, I just saw the poster. At the time, you could watch Coven on the DVD mm. in addition to ordering it directly from Mark. And now with the Blu-ray that you so um, enthusiastically got, it's not on the Blu-ray. No. So it's become that much harder to uh, to access. But you can still order signed copies directly from Mark of the VHS. I'd always planned on it. I think I even dubbed myself a copy off of the DVD onto VHS. Wow. So that I'd have it going forward, but then never went back to it. That's commitment. <laughs> commitment that I fell through on. <laughs> sure. In any case, some of it might have been like, you know, you watch the documentary. It's one of those things where you feel like you know these guys. You're hanging out with the guys. A part of it feels like they're like friends of yours. Yeah. And I got to say, like, a friend of mine made a feature film one time, and I didn't go see it. Like, like you had a screening, and I just didn't go because I was afraid it might be bad. Of course. I've seen friends do stand-up. And I look at the floor the entire time because yeah. I'm just I'm just afraid. Yeah. That they'll. By the way, um, there's, you remember Justine? Mm-hmm. Justine Marino, who is now a professional comedian. Yeah. I was there the first time she did comedy, yeah. and I told her like I looked at the floor the whole time because I was afraid you'd be bad, and she yeah. was like, "You thought I'd suck?" I was like, "No, I didn't think you'd suck. I was afraid you'd suck." Totally. There's a difference. Thank you. Because you want the best for your friends. Yeah, and yeah. I was so afraid she wouldn't get laughs. I looked yeah. at my shoes the entire time. Sure. You're afraid that they'll tank and it won't be good and that you'll yeah. have to feel that, like, empathetic feeling. And meanwhile, that's how she now makes her living as a totally. professional comedian. For so sure. shows what I know. And my friend who made the movie, he got distribution. Excellent. And now that I finally watched my friend Mark Bouchard's movie, Coven, I had no reason to be afraid because it was an interesting, eerie. Yeah. Definitely moody. Yeah. And thoughtful. Mm-hmm. piece of horror. I you know, it wasn't horror for horror's sake. It wasn't, you know, old dark house. Mm-mm. The horror is coming from some without, but a lot within. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in only 35 minutes. So, you know, there's a real um, economy yeah. to the film. I agree. And I said it before and I'll say it again. Tom Schimmel was a standout performer in that movie for me. As you and, said, and he's good because he's got a lot of lines. Yeah. So I think he was well cast in that regard. But like, there's a formality to a lot of Mark Borchardt's writing it comes out a lot in his, um, the more recent radio 
program that he wrote, mm-hmm. there's a formality. That's the best way I know how to say it. It's like those auditions that you see for Northwestern at the beginning of American movie where they're saying the lines and it's like, so however many minutes at prime rates, there's a formality. Yeah. I keep saying that, but I okay. think that's the right word. And I think sometimes some of the things I'd seen that actor do in American movie, Tom Schimmel, I was like surprised how grounded his performance was in Coven, if that makes sense. Because I do think sometimes the way that Mark writes can like be hard to make it sound natural. Not every line, but some lines, Okay, if that makes sense. Some of the dialogue. Yeah. So he's a friend who he's got ulterior motives. Mm-hmm. but he's also acting as a friend. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's kind of what it's all about at the end of the day. I mean, yeah. as far as he's concerned, he's just doing his friend a solid by getting him wrapped up in this group that helped him. Yeah. But uh, let's go from the beginning here. It starts with a dream sequence of that stark Wisconsin winter, if not winter, fall. Love bare trees and bare fields. It's um, Mark who stars in it. Mm-hmm. My God, did we ever say that earlier? Maybe we can say it a little more clearly, but yes, Mark is the star of Coven and he plays a character named Mike. Yeah. So then we meet Mike. I wrote it in all caps so I could tell the difference. Mark's between... character, Mike. Mark's character, Mike, running down the road and up comes a truck next to him. And it's Uncle Bill playing somebody you'd see in a dream, really, because we don't see him again. But he's like, what do you call it when someone's the bearer of bad news in a... A harbinger? A harbinger, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah. I agree. It's all right. It's okay. There's something to live for. Jesus told me so. And that just feels like the kind of digestible advice you would get from, like, a group mm-hmm. meeting. Mm-hmm. And then... He's bloody in the street and he wakes up. It was all a dream. But that's the sort of anxiety from the dream that gets carried with him in real life. Mm-hmm. Hey, let me tell you something. As much as you want the article is as much as I want the cash. You'll get the goddamn thing on Friday. So he's playing a writer who has an assignment that he's woefully behind on and he's turning to, like, speed yeah. in order to get through it. But instead, he overdoses and winds up in the hospital. Mm-hmm. At least I got you. And uh, one, two, three, three of you um, allegedly assumed to get me out of this fucking tragedy, which I'm facing by Friday. Something about Mark, the man, the filmmaker, mm-hmm. he goes macro is the best I've been able to describe it. Someone asks him a question, he answers it kind of like on another level. Yeah. You break apart the question itself, which can be frustratingly unsatisfying. Go, first of all, you got to talk about this word, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right? And then he's all... He's like, first of all, man, because we're all just chemicals, and you know, sometimes he can go that route, yeah. or sometimes it just turns into something about destiny, or just sometimes it's about yeah. different art forms. God, now I'm realizing that I think I go macro sometimes when people ask me questions. Really? <laughs> I think I go micro, and that's, yeah. that's kind of... Made it tough for me to like really get a... What is a f- going micro versus going macro? The small details. Mm. When someone asks me how I'm doing, yeah, shy of just, you know, fine, thank you, I'll get into a small detail and just let that stand in for everything else. Sure. Um, but yeah, Mark as a person so does go macro. Going macro, it doesn't matter what the assignment is. Yeah. It's a deadline and the pressures of a deadline are on. And isn't that what his whole life personally feels like? Yeah. The deadline. Uh-huh. 
So his response to the deadline is substance abuse, which lands him in the hospital. Nice kind of eerie moment. And this is all in black and white. So, And it feels a little claustrophobic sometimes in a good way for me. But I think some of that is just the way it's lit. And the available sets. Exactly. You yeah. Know? He's like filming kind of like one corner of his yeah. parents' house. And I like the and, way it makes it feel. But I think that is a constraint that yeah. like maybe couldn't be overcome. Of course, then but... we're in an elevator. So, yeah, this is constrained. It's, yeah. The walls are closing yeah. in, Kat. Yeah, yeah. It's a claustrophobic feeling film, but yeah. He, he's white. sharing an elevator with a girl in a gurney. Mm-hmm. And then Goodman, and I want to say his full name just because we're really, I want to praise the fellow. Oh, the very proper actor? Yes. The, love, I love that guy. The most proper actor in all of Milwaukee. Yeah. He composes himself as if he's walking down a boulevard in France. Absolute legend. Yeah. And you know that he's just surrounded by flower carts and cafes yes. when really he's just... Milwaukee. In Milwaukee. It's wild. But you wouldn't know it to look at the guy or talk to the guy. No. You're on the high path to hell, and we are here to help you. We have proven capabilities. He is, as Goodman, who turns out to be the leader of, of like the group, Robert Richard George, but with a J. Great look. And if you were to hire anybody anywhere, mm-hmm. not just like local hire from Wisconsin, but anywhere... To be like a personification of the devil. Yeah. Especially maybe like a Twilight Zone style devil, I'd say. Yeah. He's your man. His cackles, like, he is eating it up. And he's, yeah. His cane, his beard. Yeah. It's yeah. all, it's all there. Incredible. And so when, when the elevator door opens, like, and he appears, his just standing there makes the, like the girl go into a seizure. Yeah. And it's like, throughout all of this, is it a coincidence? Is it all in his head? Or is he just emoting evil, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Kind of like the omen never gives you a hundred percent. I love movies like that. Welcome back to the land of the living. All right. Good to see you. He gets picked up by his friend who was like, look, man, you just had a close call with your own life. It's time you uh, got serious about kicking your habit. Mm-hmm. Let's get you in a group. And he's like, objects to the idea of groups. But he goes regardless. Mm-hmm. And it's held in a church. Mm-hmm. And it's a group that kind of values a level of spirituality, mm-hmm. non-specific spirituality, to like see them through. You're thinking about the American dream of owning a home, having a nice family, car, decent job. And you get into like a comfort zone of where this is all going to be. It, it all seems so real. But after a while, things start to go the opposite way. And I did note that. Someone during group mentions the American dream, which I yeah. just think is an interesting echo. You yes. Know what I mean? It comes up in Coven and it comes up in American movie. It's not just a clever title by sticking the word American in front of something to make it mean, I always think it makes it mean like something is exacerbated or made more intense. Right. If you've got a movie, it's like, okay, you've got an American movie. Totally. It, yeah. And the fact that that came out a little bit Southern oh, sh- for you or, is telling, yeah. I feel. Like a professional wrestler. It's like, yeah. what kind of flower is that? That's an American beauty. Totally. And I just think that line being in there, the fact that that phrase is in Coven makes me think that not only is Mark kind of an embodiment and an interesting symbol of a version of the American dream, but like it's on his mind explicitly. It's a a through line. Yeah. Well, I remember one time in particular, uh, after smoking all that marijuana, I had, uh, kind of lost control and I, uh, and that's where uh, Mike Shank is. He's only credited as group member. I think he's very good in the scene. 
I think most of the people in the scene are just reading the script and, you know, making it their own and talking about how hard life can be and Mm -hmm. how substance abuse doesn't make it better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think when Mike talks, that's just Mike telling some story from his past. Three people in particular you have to stay away from when you're tripping on acid are police officers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. He talks about, like, going to group and, like, it sounds like it was, like, court-ordered group, but he rebels by, like, taking acid before going into the group. And stepping back from that, you know the story that he tells about, like, almost dying mm-hmm. from acid? Yeah. He was 16 yeah. when that story took place. Yeah. So Pretty wild. Just kind of give part an idea of just how deep substances goes in this culture. Mm-hmm. It neither exists in a bubble, and it is pervasive. I really don't know what to, uh, to say. Um, I guess... Uh, I've got my share of problems, too. Um, Mark's character, Mike, attends the group. He's not, like, convinced by them. Not enough to, like, stop. Yeah. So the scene that they were going to film in the location that burned down, that was when he meets with, like, the speed dealer and he goes and buys some speed. Yeah. And that is my favorite small detail in the movie. It's just that they're both smoking and they're just ashing into a waste basket Mm -hmm. that's between them. Mm -hmm. I think most movies... The prop guy would just set out an ashtray. Yeah. And either they didn't have an ashtray in the scene, or that's a detail of life that Mark has brought to the film. experience. And it's not one of those details where it's like, I have to step back and reevaluate things. But it's just like, no, these are guys who, among their addictions, is nicotine. And this isn't a glamorous smoking. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the less glamorous smoking is can also be dictated by where they have to ash. Where can I put my ash? Not everyone's just sort of like ashing into a fireplace or mm-hmm. something. I don't know. What's, what's glamorous? On a cigarette that's on the end of a holder, a yes. cigarette holder. <laughs> or into one of those, like, ashtrays on stems. Yeah. These are just two guys smoking because they gotta, buying yeah. drugs because they gotta, Oof. ashing into a wastebasket that already has stuff in it. Yeah. So there's, there's the kind of details you can get yep. from someone who knows this world. And then he goes into the woods to have a a bit of a a drink and a think. Mm. And cloaked figures show up and drag him through the muck. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And he escapes them. And it's it's great watching the movie having, like, seen it already. Yeah. These cloaked figures and what went into, like, just getting the shot. Yeah. Of course, the first meeting is a big step. But as we all know, showing up the second time is most telling. So in our own little way, we celebrate that back at group they're telling him he's got to bottom out he's got to reach bottom and they're kind of hitting that mm-hmm. and is this where they he thinks they dope him mm-hmm. like he drinks something and then he starts right. seeing things yeah and so there's a bit with a priest in the bathroom and he's just sort of like espousing some gibberish which was nice just i mean one it's something that could happen but it also it's like am i seeing things totally and that's also something we saw in the movie doing adr in the bathroom which yep. people record in a bathroom for like good acoustics yep but he was actually in that bathroom because that scene was in a bathroom. Because the scene was in a bathroom. Yeah. So he thinks he might have been doped because now he's seeing things. I think crosses might start bleeding. Mm-hmm. So he just gets out of there. That's pretty cool. Mike, where the hell did you go? You just disappeared on us. Is something wrong? And that's when, with no explanation, he goes to the drive-in theater. Mm-hmm. Maybe to have a think. And get some writing done. You yourself have been known to go places to have a think. You just described it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, why did he go there? Because it looks great. Yeah. Because it looks... a cool set piece. Awesome. Now, in real life, one of the early bits with Mark 
was going to an airport parking lot so he can write free of distraction. Yeah. Just sit in his car. In the freezing Wisconsin wintertime. Yeah. With his fingerless gloves and write. And people go to a Starbucks to get away from all the awesome stuff in their house that could distract them. Mm -hmm. Your car in the middle of a parking lot has less distractions than a Starbucks. Yeah. No Wi-Fi there. Mm -mm. And besides all that, it does look great. His entering, the way they've got that big sign for the drive-in. It's really amazing. As good as any shot in North by Northwest. Yeah. As it comes in. That's what made me think of it. Specifically of North by Northwest. Mm -hmm. Just the way that thing just fills the shot. Yep. And then the figures surround the car and that looks great. That looks like the scene in the original The Thing where they all like stand in a circle. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and then they destroy his car. Now this is part of the stuff that was made back in 94. Yep. He probably didn't have trouble getting friends to help him. Back then when it's like, hey, come beat up a car with me. Yes. With like crowbars and stuff. That sounds like fun. Yeah. Less so just like, hey, walk through the snowy woods in the same outfits. It's like, oh man, I'm busy. Yeah. (laughs) But it's like, hey, come bust up a car with me and break a bunch of glass. Yeah. He had uh, two versions of the same car, which was a great old, I think they said it was a Zephyr. There's a new personal car in town. Zephyr Z7 from Lincoln Mercury. It's got as much character as like the Oldsmobile that you keep seeing in like the Evil Dead films. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. in like all oh, yeah. the Evil Dead movies. Feels it's, it's, a lot like that. Yeah, it's like that. That is also in Sam Raimi's other movies. Oh yeah, it's it's always somewhere. Well, well, look who's here. <laughs> Still, the group wants them. And now that they're not in a church, they're just in like a home. Mm-hmm. And it all culminates with him in a kitchen with his friend that got him into this. And he's arguing with him like, man, this group's not for me. And you guys are crazy. And it turns into like, hold him down. And they're going to like force what looks like a goblet of, I'll just say blood, but it's in black and white, but I'll still say blood. Yeah. You know, down his throat. And he fights back and winds up putting the guy's head through the cupboard, which we got to see. Being made. Yeah. Being made. Then he gets stabbed in the leg and we get to see the reactions that those are the reaction shots. He left his reaction shots for last. Yeah. And those are the ones his mom films. Those are the ones his mom films. Yeah. Other reaction shots were just done with a, a wind-up Bolex. Those were just him like sitting in a car like that was the final shot of the movie. Because yeah. he didn't need the crew necessarily or like the other actors yeah. for those. Which is a real moment of reflection for him. Oh, you mean when he's in the car by himself and like that's the end of the road? Like yeah. shouldn't the end of the road have had a little more fanfare? And it's like, yeah. oh, I guess not. Just him sitting in the back of the car. Come and take a picture of him. Besides his mom's picture, there is a whole documentary commemorating it. Yeah, it's nice. But anyways, the character of Mike is in this scuffle, and he gets stabbed in the leg, and then I guess you put someone's head through a cupboard, and that's enough to kill him. Mm -hmm. And then he's got to attack the girl who attacked him, and he's frantic at this point, and he's not like dispatching them with karate chops. This is like a knockdown fight yeah between these people just in a kitchen and then she's all bloodied up he's kind of like crawls over to a corner to just get his back to the wall and then she just goes we were just trying to help you and then that's the end yeah we were just trying to help you as important as anything else in the movie if not the most important line i think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so like what's scarier that there was a coven coming after you that there's a coven just trying to help you 
or that it was all in your head and they were just trying to, yeah. like, it's up for enough interpretation yeah. and kind of all of the answers are scary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, what did you think? Well, and I guess if I wanted to go macro, I could say that Mark is exploring themes in this movie of losing oneself to groupthink or the tide that everyone else is following or the current. Okay. And that's something he's fought against his whole life. Mark the person. Yeah. And so through this piece, maybe he's sort of subconsciously exploring that. I mean, you know, Stephen King talks about how he wrote about alcoholism, didn't even realize he had a problem for years and years and years, but wrote about like Jack Torrance and, you know, and so you go like, okay, or, and, or maybe he's exploring addiction and stuff in a way he couldn't with himself, honestly, in real life. But either way, I think there's a lot about it that's incredibly competent and it's not a perfect movie, but... I think it's plussed a lot for me by knowing all the hard work and seeing a lot of the hard work that went into it. To your point about like when you get to see him getting dragged through the woods and you see these figures out in the woods and how in filmmaking, how relatively little of hours and days that you how, spend, little screen time how it actually little got screen time it actually for how much, gets. Yeah. And it's impactful. But you go like, wow, literal blood, sweat, and tears went into the making of this. And so... I hope he's proud of it. I think he should be. And look, we have to be careful about, like, making people heroes. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying, like, Mark Borchardt is this, like, incredible genius. But he's a talented guy who knows a lot and is very passionate. And it's the thing that bugs me to no end, seeing, like, the Letterman stuff where people are just waiting on him to say something boneheaded or funny or that they think is stupid so they can laugh. And it's like watching Coven in its entirety and sort of... In the context of having seen American movie a bunch of times, I, I get a little defensive about him. And I, he's this like cult figure that as long as he's on the internet, I will check in on every once in a while to see what he's up to. There is just a care that I think is just infused into a lot of people who watch American movie. And I think Coven is, I'm just glad he got that done and I'm, I'm impressed by it. And I have enjoyed seeing what he's been up to in recent years. Well, in the 20-plus years since Coven and American Movie have come out, the documentary and Coven within it and separate from it have changed his life in some ways. Like, it's sent certain opportunities his way that can open certain doors for him. Mm-hmm. Right now, he's doing a lot more writing, and I don't know how much always that writing. came from, like, the notoriety. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I meant, yes, he is always writing his own projects, but he's also paying the bills with writing for hire. It sounds like in interviews, he's done with just a sort of Joe Jobs and he is making his money through the pursuit of writing. So, like, for um, book reviews, mm-hmm. movie essays. And I know he has a radio show. And I imagine maybe he gets paid for that. He certainly seems to enjoy it. Yeah. Um, either way. I mean, you and I don't get paid for doing this, but. Exactly. And there is a lot of personal satisfaction, I think. And yeah. getting your thoughts on movies out there, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to be sure. Yeah. And earlier I was talking about uh, Harvey Picar, who mm-hmm. created American Splendor. He would go on Letterman. Quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe the Letterman people thought they'd found their next Harvey Picar. Mm, interesting. In interesting. But Mark had other stuff. He, I mean, he's always working on many different things. Yeah. I did want to mention, you know, obviously Chris Smith, who directed American Movie, found Mark, you know, in media res, as it were. Like, this guy's got his whole world, his whole life going on creatively and this guy just decided to follow him to make this movie but you know in the mid 90s mark was writing and producing halloween radio dramas Mm -hmm. broadcast annually 
And he won a fellowship from the Milwaukee Art Futures Board. He was also making, has since then made plays that have been produced. Yes, and I sent to you a one-off radio program, kind of in the style of an old school, like a Mm -hmm. suspense, a CBS radio mystery theater, one of those. And Mark is an extremely passionate and knowledgeable fan of radio shows. It was a quiet little town, like most other quiet little towns. It had its general store, its post office, its park, and town hall. And, of course, its host of all the expected characters. And every once in a while, the unexpected. So, it's called Mr. Gradville, and I think it came out in 2021. It's on YouTube. You can go listen to it. It may be present on a podcast platform, I'm not sure, but the production quality is incredible. The acting's pretty fun, and it's a, you know, it's just like any other old radio program. If you you like like that sort of thing. Yeah, and I think that's fun. And to your point about Mark getting different opportunities opened up, as this, like, cult figure that people know is a writer and a, you know, a talker, people will reach out to him and be like, I want to produce this thing. We write it? And I think that's pretty cool. Excuse me, officer. Why don't you uh, step up to my office for a minute? Listen, I'm a businessman, and uh, what do you say we work uh, something now, okay? Butterfingers. He's gotten some acting work. He's made it yeah. clear in interviews that the acting work is just there to make some money and to, yep. to further his own ambitions. And so it's not really fair to compare him to Ed Wood, which we have been because we're a horror movie podcast, mm-hmm. and that's who we've covered in the past. Mm-hmm. I might compare him to John Cassavetes. Who would uh, take acting jobs and then use the money he made from that to fund his own independent films? Mm-hmm. Modern ventriloquism is the oppression of puppets. So right, my man. People are thrilled by the spectacle of a puppet speaking, but only with constant reassurance that it's not actually speaking and always having a hand up its back. One of the things I discovered that I thought was kind of fun is, did you see any of this show on HBO called Joe Para Talks With You? I have. Which is all set in Wisconsin. It's filmed in, in, in Milwaukee. Yeah. So in that sense, he's like a local hire. Yeah. It's supposed to be set in, in Michigan. Oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah. And I have to say, it is the gentlest comedy I've come across in a long time. It is a very specific type of show. But uh, Mark has guested on a few episodes. That... As well as some other things, the more I like listen to interviews and look into what Mark has been up to since American Movie, the more my list of things I want to check out has grown. Mm-hmm. He's acted in some stuff, and I'm just like, oh, I'd like to see more of that. Or yeah. there's a movie called Modus Operandi, and I watched its trailer, and it was also made by like a Wisconsin filmmaker. Cool. And I was like, oh, that is worth my you know hour and a half <laughs> right yeah. there. Did you watch and, the oh, Dundee Project? I did watch the Dundee Project. What do you think about that? That was fun, and... I know it was shot over several years, and I really couldn't tell what was shot years ago. And for me, it looked like it all took place in, like, one day. And I feel like that speaks to the local flavor of folk, because he started shooting for it in 2001. Okay. And it came out in 2017. And I agree with you. It doesn't feel like it took that long to film it. From the director of Coven. The UFO has come floating from out of nowhere over the lake. Through the night sky. A new documentary about a small town in a big universe. 
I should say, The Dundee Project is a short documentary that ran at a film festival or two back in 2017 that Mark made about a UFO, I wouldn't call it a convention, a gathering that happens every year in a town called Dundee. And what he said about it is that he heard about it and was like, oh, I had to go check that out. And he kept going back, but he couldn't stand the small talk so he brought a camera with him so he could have something to do while he was there. Yeah. Which is the most Mark Borchardt thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, to interact with these people without just, again, having small talk. Yeah. It's genius in so many ways. And I'm sure he recognized, like, the characters there, which show up in the film. Just these people are, like, a little, a little bit nutty. You, there's some conspiracy theory stuff in there. What did you think about it? I liked it. It felt like I was hanging out with those people. Really? Yeah. Well, this is UFO days. We've got a lot of things happening. Uh, Bob Keane's bringing a gentleman with him from Indiana that uh, that uh, has a time machine. So we're going to try that, maybe. It doesn't judge them, particularly. I agree. I agree. Yeah. If you're if, listening to this and you haven't seen it, don't take what I'm saying, what I'm putting on these people, as like how the movie treats them. That's my personal opinion yeah. and takeaway. But you're right, If, if they come off as silly, it's just because he left the camera on them long enough. I agree. To then become silly. Well, bit drunk. I mean, you know, and, a lot yeah. of them got drunk, so for sure. I agree. It doesn't judge them. In the same way that I really don't think, I mean, obviously, Mark was the subject of American movie, but I think there's been a lot of chatter over the years about American movie being exploitative, and I disagree, and I think most people disagree with that, people who care about the film and watch it without laughing at the characters and more of a... Sure. appreciation of the slice of life, I think would say, and anyway, I think in the same way, I don't think Mark is exploiting. The well, and, and any documentary can be skewed in the editing room mm-hmm. and, and not just like making up things, but like if you were to just follow me around for a month, but then just show the times I take out the garbage mm-hmm. just over and over again. And then juxtapose that against me, maybe talking about like my greatest ambitions mm-hmm. right? against it's like, well, here's a guy with some, uh, high-minded ideas when all he's doing is taking out the garbage. (laughs) Yeah. It's all what you choose to show in the limited amount of time from all the footage you have. Yeah. So to say that it doesn't judge the person, we're pretty sure. Yeah. It's not judging. Yeah. Or exploiting. We think. We think. So was there a positive message, though, for the meaning? Uh, It's just positive. Okay. There is nothing as more positive than what I'm saying. Okay. So... Are you, we should be happy with life, we should be... No! No way in hell! And I've mentioned to you, Marshall, that I don't know when I discovered that Mark was on Twitter. His handle is at more the scarier, which is the name of the, um, well, he made several installments, but one of the films he made as a kid, you know, as a teenager. It, it sounds like part six was being worked on, like, during COVID. Yeah, which is kind of cool he's really playing the long game this is a marathon not a sprint but you know ever since i realized that like he was still a presence and like he'll go on podcasts he'll go on podcasts with people that you don't know he'll go on podcasts with like eli roth and um jericho the wrestler chris jericho has a podcast we both like listened to some interviews and, and we agreed you put it best you said in interviews mark's kind of a tough nut to crack yes and then I had found the one with Jericho yeah. and Eli Roth together. And I was like, I think they got, not to say him to open up, like he talks plenty in all yeah. of his interviews. But as far as like 
getting him into a good conversational flow, mm-hmm. I guess. That you, one was the best. I'd love to know your thoughts on this. I, I wonder what that is and why. Part of me thinks that Chris Jericho and Eli Roth are people that he respects and feels on the same level with and who also treat him as though he is on their level. They respect him as well. They've, sometimes people ask him questions ironically or like don't get who he is. I think know? they've done the research. Yeah. And they've done the research by being fans. Yeah. Totally. Really. And they truly respect him. They don't try to pigeonhole him into the personality that was portrayed exactly. two decades ago. Yep. Even before the movie came out in theaters, he was probably already progressed past mm-hmm. as a person as we all grow. Mm-hmm. And there's really nothing like seeing yourself shown back to you. Mm-hmm. Maybe. We don't all get that experience. Yeah. And I think it can be... He, he might have had that pushing him along yeah. at the same time as people just wanting him to go back. Totally. And I don't think that's lessened over the years. Well, no. I, I, I think people just want to be like the local guy who stumbled into something. Right. Is he really that big a sap? <laughs> He's the original. There are no carbon copies of that one. I think part of it is maybe that Mark like seems to have known like Chris Jericho and Eli Roth. Mm-hmm. So he probably feels a little safer. And, you and think the, he's not as defensive? Yeah. And I think there is a defensiveness that he approaches most situations with when it comes to he's at a film festival, you know, and people are coming at him with questions. He's going on offense in many ways, like preempting any thoughts they might have about him being this or that or the other. And instead being like, you got to understand, I don't joke around. I don't drink. I'm not any, I'm just work, you know, and like, yeah, he's well, trying also, to make sure they understand he's a serious person. Since, not to say he wasn't serious before, but since American movie, he has gotten straight. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he's making up for lost time or just using the time that he has as best as he can. Mm-hmm. But yeah, his answer to a lot of questions about himself is how dedicated he is to productivity. And I will say that one of the things that I enjoy the most about his online presence is he will boost other things that he likes or like Twitter specifically. Yes. So when I told him we had a horror podcast, he tweeted about it. He posted about it on Facebook. Yeah. I'm not certain he listened to anything before he did that, but he was like, this person's nice. They reached out to me. I'm going to give you a boost at the time. Cause you told me that you're like, I don't think he listens to us, but here he is, you know, yeah. Boosting us. And I was like, oh, he might. But then I listened he to might. interview after interview talking about how like focused he is. Yeah. And I'm like, hey, he probably hasn't it's not terribly productive. messed around with yeah. us. Twitter can be a pretty toxic place. But his little corner of it, he will post about stuff he's working on. But he will say things like, I'm going to show you this one I screenshotted. And it's a picture of, how would you describe that picture? Bare branches with the... Uh... Another tree in the background, but separated by snow falling. Yeah. A lot of falling snow, basically. Diffused, I'd say, yeah. by snow falling. And the tweet is Monday morning has kicked off with an unexpected, amazingly beautiful snowstorm. We are thankful that winter has not left us behind in its thoughts. We now have the week ahead to live meaningfully in the true realm of all that we must continue to be. So, this isn't really about being productive, it's about being intentional and grounded. And it's also about gratitude for. An absolutely ugly snowstorm. What a lot of people would go, God damn it. I got to drive in this. this. I got the kids and blah, blah, blah. And it's this whole thing. And his response to it is, we're thankful that winter has not left us behind in its thoughts. This is a relatively recent tweet. Like a lot of people are just like, come on spring, come on summer. And he's just like, 
No, the majesty of winter. The brevity of life that also drives him. Yeah. I think also keeps him enjoying things like that. Yeah. There have been times where I am having a crazy day and I will see a tweet of his and I'm like, I got to be more like that, you know? And so for that, I really appreciate his, he just pushes it out to the universe. Like, think about what's important to you and work on it. Mm -hmm. And I think he's a great example that it doesn't matter how much necessarily you turn out, but that you keep at it. I mean, you've been, you're working on a novel. I don't know if our listeners know that. I've never mentioned it before. Well, I just did. And I think it's, you know, you'll mention it to me every once in a while. I don't know how much you work on it, but it seems like it's a living, breathing thing you're working on. And the point is that it's important to you and you invest in it. You know, you do that when you, the mood strikes you or whatever. Mr. Jones writes at night, hoping to storm the citadel of literary fame. He's written for years without any encouragement. When I don't get in my own way. Yeah. And we all do. Mark Borchardt certainly does. We all do. But I think he's such a great example of somebody who, like, he's going to keep trying not to get in his own way. And I think we would all do well to not beat up ourselves too much when we have a setback or feel like we're not being productive enough or we haven't, whatever, we haven't hit our reading goal for the year or the month. Um, not <laughs> I, that I'm, I'm sorry, on that one sounded a little personal. It was. But it's true. Like, I think we have to sometimes do a better job of reflecting on the work we have done and giving ourselves a break and allowing ourselves to appreciate the majesty of a horrible winter snowstorm every once in a while. All right. I think you've said it all. So I'm just going to get down to business with a little business of how you can actually get things like copies of Coven or some t-shirts and such directly from Mark. So I think there's some bootleg products out there. I went on a bit of a search as to what kind of American movie items one can get. And I think there's a few people who are just kind of peddling shirts with images of Mark or mm. images of Mark and Mike. Or maybe he, he gets a cut out of all of it. I don't know. I didn't follow the money. Yeah. But I feel that when you can go out and buy some ephemera for something you like, it's always nicer when you get it directly from like the artist. Here, here. Or the subject. Mm -hmm. So... The best I've been able to find has been um, www.coven.square.site. Because there's also, at the time, when this website went up, you could get, like, Coven 2 t-shirts. Mm -hmm. Which is something I know I'd like to see. Not yeah. just a t-shirt, but an actual finished I agree. Coven 2. I agree. I also know that he does video messages for hire. So it's not through like yeah, cameo. It's not through cameo. You can I think it's pinned on his Twitter profile at More the Scarier. There's an email that you can send yeah. an email to. I think More the Scarier at Twitter is really the best way of both interacting with him and if you want to buy something, mm -hmm. you'll find out about it through there. Yeah. Better than anywhere else. Yeah. Do you get like alerts when he posts something? No, or I'm not that crazy. I'm not. But when his tweets show up, and they are that poetic. I take it as a cue of like, oh, let's get more present today and appreciate our surroundings and all of that. And I mentioned before, but I did reach out to him. I was thinking about maybe like getting a video message or something. But, you know, part of it might have been how I positioned that we were doing a podcast about him and about American movie. And he was like, man, I don't really associate with that movie. And I was like, fair enough. Hope you're well. And that was when he was like... I had mentioned in my initial email about boys and ghouls. Oh, this was an email. Yeah. And um, 
he was like, it's cool that you have a podcast. I'll tweet about it or whatever. So nothing but nice interactions with him. And I bring that up just to say, like, I'm not like a crazed super... I don't worship the quicksand he walks on. We all are flawed human beings. It's one of those wild experiences. It's the... um high fidelity she should be living on neptune thing like she's in the mm-hmm. fucking phone book it's like he's on twitter like this guy who existed who should be living movie, on mars he should be living on mars he should be living in 1997 like <laughs> it but he isn't just this figure from a movie he's an actual he, guy he's a guy and the movie captured so, something and it made me invested in a way, in what he has gone on to do. And the modern world we live in means I actually have access to see, like, what's he up to? And that's just kind of a cool thing. So I'll probably always pay attention. And I'm just going to uh, say that this guy, for what he's given us, as far as that we can point to and say, right here, has been a 35-minute horror movie. That's pretty good. Check it out. And through that, the fact that it was a horror movie... And not something else gave us the hook to be able to uh, explore this fellow and uh, do it with each other and do it for you good listeners. So, uh, Kat, until until the next time, perhaps a a word of advice. Beware the moon. (laughs) 